I always lost. Uh, my dad usually sitting on top of me and saying, say uncle, say uncle. And, uh, you know, finally I won. But I love wrestling with my dad. It was a closeness, obviously. You know, it was his body against mine. It was uh, feeling his strength. It was reassuring in a lot of ways, even though I knew I was going to lose every single time. Um, and uh, it's interesting that I've continued that relationship with God the Father and with Jesus the Son and with the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's the way I intend to feel me close. But I think it's also scriptural. So the question I have this morning uh, for us all is, like, what kind of person, what kind of Christian do you want to be? How can we become more like Christ in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds? How can we stop relying on our own puny strength and start relying more on the strength that God offers us in Jesus Christ? What is the path to humility? Becoming humble as Jesus was humble. I mean, I really want to be humble. But then I worry, but what if nobody else notices? <laughs> if God is not to form us into the image of Jesus Christ, then what might that process look like? Would it be easy? Difficult? Will it be painful? How long might it take? I'm going to say that sometimes being conformed in the image of Jesus Christ looks a lot like wrestling with Father God. I have been given the gift of wrestling with God. And by that, I mean, I've had my share of failures in life. Because God always wins. I've lost those wrestling matches. And I'm very glad about that. Quite a few of those wrestling matches have happened while I was in ministry. No pastor friend of mine used to say, Mike, don't trust anyone who doesn't and by that, he was referring to the primary biblical wrestling story of Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord, whom many theologians and pastors believe to be the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. The prophet Hosea hinted that it was just not any old angel with whom Jacob was tussling. In Hosea 12, 3, the prophet writes this about Jacob. He says, In the womb he grasped his brother's heel, and as a man he struggled with God. Now, if you don't know the story, I hope most of you do. Jacob stole his older brother Esau's birthright and blessing 
deceiving their father Isaac and pretending to be Esau. It may be the first recorded case of identity theft in the world. But what was Jacob's motivation? Why would he do that? Why, under false pretenses, and knowing that it would not be long before both his older brother and his father found out about his deception, would he do that anyway? I think Jacob, like every other child in the world, craved the paternal blessing. More than anything, he longed to hear words of affirmation spoken over him by his father. And if a blessing like that can only be gained under false pretenses, well then, so be it. A child would resort to any measure to satisfy that primal craving. <laughs> I, know, I know that uh, as a kid, when my dad got angry with me, I would start to smile and laugh. And he would look at me like, why are you laughing? Like, this is not the appropriate time. But you know, the fact that he was paying attention to me, that he cared enough to get angry, I thought that was great. And so you can imagine the kind of trouble I got into as a kid. Over and over again. Simply put, Jacob wanted more than anything to hear from his father's lips. I see you. I love you. I like you, you matter to me. So let's go to our passage in uh, Genesis 32 this morning. Here's Jacob about to see his brother for the first time since Jacob stole Esau's place in the family. And um, then he ran away. Now, at this particular point in the story, it's years later, Esau is coming to meet his brother Jacob returning home, with 400 armed men. That's the welcome to me. So, Jacob is terrified. He's trying to do everything he can to assuage his brother's anger. The consequences of his own sin are now catching up with and this is what happens the night before he sees Esau. Starting in verse 22. That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed toward the Jabbok. After he had set them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched, meaning in the Hebrew, he just tapped, just a little bit. <coughs> he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no 
Jacob, which kind of means cheater, deceiver. But it will be Israel. Israel means he struggles with God. Because you have struggled with God and with humans, and you have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, which means face of God, just so you know, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. There is the reading of God's holy word. I believe that the wrestler was Jesus himself, the pre incarnate Christ. After he wrestles with Jacob for hours, he simply touches Jacob's hip and he gets thrown out of joint. Jacob, I think, had an epiphany at that particular moment. This guy could wipe me out with a punch. He could throw me down to the ground and I would keep going all the way down in the air. Like, I'm not wrestling any normal person. It's pretty obvious. So this is the turning point in the story. It's the turning point in Jacob's life. So he changed his strategy between verses 25 and verses 26. He totally changes his strategy from trying to overpower this man in a wrestling match to begging for his blessing, clinging on to him and not letting go. Now, why did this epiphany happen? And you ever like the answer? It's because of Jacob's pain. As soon as Jacob was in pain, he realized, I'm wrestling. So Jacob realizes God's presence at the moment of his weakness, the moment that he knew he was utterly helpless and defenseless. Now that sounds a bit like us, doesn't it? Don't most of us have to be beat down by life before we turn our eyes upward toward heaven? See, this is why God is scary. I mean, he's good. But he's not safe. But he's good. And I think also that during this wrestling match, as he's wrestling with God, he realizes, hey, this is the place. This is the person from whom I want the blessing. My dad was great. But God is great. Here's the approval I've been looking for my entire life. Not from my dad, but from God. 
Here's the beauty I've been looking for in my wife Rachel. It's not in my wife Rachel. It's here in God. Here's the wealth I've been looking for from my Uncle Laban. It's not with Uncle Laban. It's here with God. Here in meeting and struggling with the pre-incarnate Christ is the approval behind the approval, the beauty behind the beauty, the wealth behind the wealth. There's a great quote by Derek Kinder in his famous commentary on Genesis. He says that when God touched Jacob's socket, it was defeat and victory all wrapped up in one. It was defeat and victory all wrapped up in one. C.S. Lewis does the one better, I think. C.S. Lewis says, every story of a conversion is a story of a blessed defeat. Every story of conversion is a story of a blessed defeat. I don't know if you feel that way about your spiritual life. I certainly do. Because I've been wrestling with God ever since I can remember. If you find yourself fighting with God, at some point you come to the realization that he is not someone to vanquish. He is not somebody to control. He is not somebody to rule over. But he's somebody to cling to. It's the first step in the Alcoholics Anonymous 12 steps. Right? God wants us to wrestle with him and not rely on our own wits. He wants us to give up our own abilities and then hold on just like Jacob. I've got three points today. They're pretty simple, but I think they're uh, unusual. This is a message, really, I think, for a more mature follower of Christ, because it's tough to swallow, frankly. Point number one, Jesus is the initiator. I want to point out that God starts to struggle with Jacob, not Jacob. God starts to struggle in order to bring Jacob to a point of spiritual and physical submission. So that Jacob can see what a poor and helpless creature he really is without God. And it was to teach us, who read this about story about Jacob and the, Jesus, is that in our weakness lies our strength. In our weakness lies our strength. Does that sound familiar at all? Do you know any New Testament? passages the Apostle Paul might have written about when we are weak, that we are strong, because then God's strength will be made manifest in our weakness. It's the same thing. It's the same God. It's the same principle. The Lord of the universe, the one whose handiwork formed the heavens and the starry host, is perfect in every way. He does no wrong. Regardless of how we see circumstances played out, he does no wrong. Regardless
regardless if we are injured deeply, God does no wrong. He alone is a sovereign Lord, and He alone has His will done and accomplished. He starts the process of making us better people, and He finishes it. Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Point number one. Jesus initiates this. He initiates the sanctification process. Point number two. Jesus is the winner, clearly. God always wins the wrestling match, just like my dad. If we were smart, the sooner we submit, the better. In the story, we have long last seen a broken and contrite spirit in Jacob. He is humbled to the We see a man that's dependent upon God, no longer dependent upon himself. We see a picture of a man renewed by the power of God, now being remade, remade in God's image. He's going from Jacob, he's going from Israel. You're going from the old person you used to be to the new person God wants you to become. He's got a picture of a better Sue, a better Paul, a better Dave, a better Nancy. It doesn't matter who you are. He has the perfect reflection of Jesus Christ in your life, all mapped out. And he's going to get you there. I myself, as I said before, have been tossed with God, been pinned to the mat. I've had to submit to God's ways. I found that the goddess of need me. I mean, sometimes it's been the church that's hurt me. I know this is going to be shocking news to most of you that the church people could hurt you in any way. But I had, you know, the gala party of all retirement parties when I left Stanley Beer Church. It was amazing. They decorated the whole church like it was Narnia. And, uh, you know, there was speech after speech. It was like being in your own funeral. Um, saying all these wonderful things. And then, then, the church council made some decisions that cost me thousands of dollars. I won't go into the details, but I think they were just being stupid. I'm going, thousands of dollars, folks. And I'm struggling with Jesus about this. I'm going, come on, what? You know, you could have stopped this from happening. Why would you let this happen, Lord God? And little still voice starts speaking in my head. Little thoughts cross my mind. Well, my, I'm trying to turn you more into the image of Jesus. And you have lessons to learn, just like he had lessons to learn. He tells us. He learned obedience to the things he suffered, right? The little voice in my head said, some lessons only come in negative forms. Are you going to love these people who are hurting you? Are you going to forgive them? Are you going to treat them as if it never happened? Are 
Are you going to forgive them even though they don't know what they're doing? Are you going to be just a little bit more like Jesus? See, this is me wrestling with God. That's a picture of it. I don't believe there's a downside to that particular gift. I mean, I'm going to carry the scars. I'm going to walk with a limp. It'll probably get more and more pounds until the day I die. Although it's a gift that none of us desire when we first become Christians. Here's the truth. If you get into a position of responsibility or authority, it doesn't matter if it's in your family, it could be in your neighborhood, it could be in your job, it could be in ministry of the church. But if you get into a position of responsibility and authority before you walk with a limp, People relying on you will have to suffer through your pride and your mistakes and your arrogance until you really are pinned to the mat. Until God wrestles you down. And they'll have to go through the process that requires you failing. That's not a lot of fun. Think of some of the pastors that you've heard of who have been humbled by God. Did their congregations get off country? No. God used that wrestling match in their lives as well. Think of some of the politicians who have been humbled by God. Did their staffs survive the struggle? Jesus 
face to face, the face of God, any hour, is because of what Jesus has done for all time. I mean, don't get me into discussion about, oh, Jesus came out of Jacob and the crucifixion. Like, I think all times to God are now. This is why you and I can suffer the blessed defeat of having our hips put on a joint and then merely walk with a limp. In some small way, we imitate death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in our world. So, think about this. That difficult kid that you're trying to raise keeps you up late at night, can't sleep, toss him back and forth in bed, Worrying all through the day. I think that's God wrestling with you. That business setback that you just had, the one where you've lost clients, the one where a coworker betrayed you, that's God wrestling. The problems in your marriage, that's God wrestling with you. Those financial hardships, that's God wrestling with you. That physical illness that God can take away like that, but he doesn't, that's God wrestling with you. Those people who are making your life difficult, maybe in your own family, that's God wrestling with you. I mean, look at the landscape of your life. God can stop any one of these things from happening and have other easy things take their place, but he does not. In the story of Jacob wrestling with Jesus, we see the good stuff I can do is because of the power of 
they're now, more than ever, they're the kind of people that God can trust with more responsibility in the kingdom. There needs to be a hall of shame somewhere in the back of your head that you can go and visit and look at all the stuff on the wall and visit where you can walk with a limp through the museum. It's good to know that we've never sinned so badly that God won't forgive us. It's great to realize that even while we are ignoring Jesus, running away from him, even denying him, he still believes us and will still track us down and wrestle us into submission. Isn't that good news? Can't get away from his love. Can't get away. I remember, uh, it's kind of weird with this thing called Story Night where people get up and tell their stories. And um, this one girl got up and she talked about how she had lied to her parents. She's a Christian college and she had lied to her parents and how that lie just sat with her and just ate away at her until she couldn't take it anymore and she finally had to confess to her parents that she had lied. And I'm going, there's a girl who walks away. Boy, I don't like his third to think that way. <laughs> That's what I thought. Uh, next month, you guys are going to have Craig Wobber come and speak to you. Distinguished professor of New Testament, world-renowned theologian, like, invite all your friends. He can answer all your questions extemporaneously. I know, because he was a scavenger for many years while marrying him. He and his wife, Fran. Fran actually came on staff at Scoundrel. And the thing that blew me away week after week was here was this guy, my professor, who knew more about the Bible than I did or anybody else on staff put together, would come and humbly he would sit and listen to our fumbling sermons every week. And he would say, You know, Mike, I get something out of every sermon that I hear. I'm going, What kind of humility is that? I mean, his wife had a PhD when she was a nurse, and then she had a PhD in missiology. And she wants to be on scrums now. I could hardly believe that. And she's talking to, you know, kids. She's talking to young women her her kids' age. And she's making herself available to them, and she's doing things for them. I'm going, you know, that's Seeking him in prayer, scared at the end of his rope, 
What does God do to a man like that? He clubs him. He knocks him down, literally. He assaults him. He puts a hammer on him, and he maims him for the rest of his life. He's talking about Jacob. This is not a God of anybody's religion. This is not a God of anybody's imagination. Why is this text here? It must have happened. Who would have thought it up? What kind of an idiot would think up a God like this? Who could have imagined a God like this? This must have happened. This must be a real God because nobody else could have invented him. The fact that God treats us this way is no less than the consequence of his great love. In love, he has to wrestle us into his image. He delights in us. He loves us. It's because God loves us that he wrestles us into a changed life. It's like your dad wrestling with you on the living room floor when you were a kid. Do you see that in order to have your heart, God might have to dislocate your head? Have you ever had your life put on a joint by God? Have you ever had your plans and your dreams dislocated? God's way to your heart is by dislocating something that you think makes you strong. Where in your life is Jesus wrestling with you right now? When we take communion, this is what we're doing. We're identifying with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, becoming like him in his death and his resurrection. We agree to walk with the living. In other words, when we take communion, we renew the contract that God, that we have with God, and we're allowing God to wrestle us in the image of the Son whenever he sees fit. 2 Corinthians 13, 4 says, For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we live in him. Communion is the commitment to struggle. Taking communion is the commitment to struggle. And then because God loves you, because he's in love with you, he's going to come and wrestle you into a better, improved version of the image of Christ that you carry alone uniquely in the whole world. God is going to ambush you when you are facing the consequences of your own bad decisions. He's going to ambush you at life's most difficult moments. And I want us just to say yes to the wrestling match. Just a great wrestling match. One of my favorite Poets. My wife introduced me to him, John Dunn, Englishman, from hundreds of years ago, became a Christian. Penned these words, he said, Batter my heart, three person God. For you, as yet but not breathe, shine and seek to mend. Batter my heart, three person God, that I may rise and stand. Overthrow me and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me 
Jeremiah was committed to destroy. 